Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash HSG. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer. Welcome to this Pure Voice panel discussion on ALK positive metastatic non small cell lung cancer. This activity comprises three presentations featuring Professor Solange Peters, Dr. Todd Bauer, and Professor Nicolas Girard. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, this is Solange Peters from Lausanne University Hospital in the Canton de Vaud in Switzerland. Welcome to the activity titled Advancing Our Patient-Centered Approach to Care in ALK-Positive Metastatic Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Joining me in the discussion are my two friends and esteemed colleagues, Nicolas Girard from Curie-Montsouris Thorax Institute in France and Todd Bauer from the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee in the US. In the first presentation, we will discuss the current standards of care for treatment of patients with advanced or metastatic ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer with, of course, a focus on targeted therapies. Let's deep dive into ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer. It's a rare disease uh, which is found in non-small cell lung cancer and involves a chromosomal rearrangement in the ALK gene loci found in approximately only three to maybe 5% of non-small cell lung cancer tumors. The novel fusion oncogene, most often EML4 ALK, uh, is a rearrangement which drives the oncogenic phenotype, the metastatic phenotype of the disease. Detecting ALK gene rearrangements in newly diagnosed patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer or recurrent non-small cell lung cancer has become critical today, as the presence of this oncogene will dramatically influence treatment decisions. Brain metastasis have been known to be a paradigm of ALK-positive disease and to develop in more than half of the patients with ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer. These are associated, of course, brain meds with poor prognosis, difficulties to treat, high symptom burden, and decreased quality of life. Maybe asking Nicola if you can uh, maybe take us through the fast evolution of available and approved ALK inhibitors, ALK targeted therapies over time. Nicolas? Yes, thank you, uh, Solange. Uh, we have seen uh, so many improvements in the treatment of those patients over the past uh, 10 years. Uh, uh, after, right after the discovery of the ALK uh, fusion, uh, uh, we had the availability of first-generation ALK-TKI, which was chrysotinib, and it was rapidly approved uh, in, uh, in the first-line setting for patients with ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer, metastatic disease. And then we had a development of uh, next-generation ALK inhibitors that uh, includes so-called second-generation inhibitors, with an ability to target the resistance mechanism observed after exposure to uh, chrysotinib. And these second generation inhibitors include lectinib and um, uh, brigatinib. We have uh, also uh, a third generation inhibitor, which is uh, lorlatinib, uh, initially approved 
in the uh, late line setting after the failure of previous uh, uh, TKIs and now approved as first line uh, treatment for these patients. Thanks so much. Maybe we can start with the brigatinib trial. It's called the ALTA-1L trial, first line trial. And maybe, uh, Nicola, you can drive us through this specific uh, clinical trial and the updated data. So the ALTA uh, first line trial compared brigatinib versus crizotinib. This is a phase three randomized uh, uh, trial, ALK positive non-small cell lung cancer, first line uh, treatment, meaning no previous exposure to uh, ALK, uh, any kind of ALK uh, inhibitors. And uh, uh, these uh, patients uh, uh, were randomized between brigatinib. Uh, so brigatinib starting with 90 milligrams for one week and then uh, reaching the uh, standard dose of 180 milligrams versus crizotinib, uh, which is uh, uh, 250 milligrams uh, BID. Uh, uh, the primary endpoint in this uh, study was uh, uh, PFS assessed by a blinded independent uh, committee with uh, other secondary endpoints. In the ALTA first line trial, we had a significant benefit with brigatinib as compared to uh, uh, crizotinib. In terms of, of, of three-year landmark uh, uh, PFS, uh, uh, we are almost doubling uh, uh, this three-year PFS with brigatinib from 19% with crizotinib to 43% with uh, brigatinib. As you can see uh, on the overall uh, survival data from ALTA uh, uh, first line, we can expect uh, uh, these patients to have uh, like 70% uh, three-year uh, overall survival. So. These data are very interesting because we can see that these patients may reach long-term overall survival. So this is a matter of sequencing uh, available uh, uh, therapeutic uh, options. Depending on uh, the presence of uh, CNS disease uh, at baseline, we can see that uh, in patients with brain metastasis, uh, we have uh, a significant benefit with brigatinib versus uh, uh, crizotinib. Uh, uh, we have also a tendency of, of a benefit in patients without brain metastasis. Um, with the ALK uh, inhibitors, the safety profile is actually very different from one uh, agent to another. Um, with brigatinib, the global uh, safety profile is uh, 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 clearly manageable. There are some respiratory uh, events in those patients, and this is why uh, the uh, starting dose is uh, half of the uh, standard dose, and patients should receive 90 milligrams for seven days before uh, uh, receiving the standard dose. Thanks so much, Nicolas. Do you consider that such a phase three trial should change the standard of care? Uh, is it your feeling that um, you have good arguments not to sequence, but to start with this drug, for example? Yes, uh, because we have a doubling of PFS, so this is clinically uh, meaningful. And moreover, we have this protection against uh, CNS disease. We have a higher effect on existing brain metastasis. 
and this is a major endpoint in the clinic for these patients. We see the OS is pretty good um, uh, long term in those patients. Even these, these patients do receive treatment for uh, prolonged duration as well. This is also a way to possibly avoid uh, uh, radiotherapy, even stereotactic. These patients will have multiple disease progression, especially in the brain. So starting with a drug that is controlling CNS disease is very important. Uh, Todd, would you still follow this theory of uh, best drug first? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's we do that in every, every other tumor type we treat. Um, we don't ever save the best drug for later down the road just so it's more convenient. One, not everybody gets that next line of therapy, so you're right about that. And two, we start to induce resistance mutations within the ALK, uh, the ALK fusion protein, and then they are less likely to respond to the second and third generation drugs. Um, so we really do want to uh, use those best drugs up front. Nicolas, you spoke about this concern about lung toxicity. With this leading phase with 90 milligrams, do you still see it or could you almost consider it disappeared? No, it, it almost disappeared with this uh, dosing schedule. Let me go. Let me go through the the next trial. Alectinib is another second generation ALK-TKI, which was also treating patients with untreated ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer. In that trial, previous chemotherapy was not allowed, so the patients were purely naive from any treatment and randomized to alectinib, 600 milligrams twice per day versus the usual dose of crizotinib. Importantly here, uh, these patients with uh, asymptomatic brain meds were allowed, which allows for some observation of the activity. And the primary endpoint was again PFS. But little difference to keep in mind, the PFS was investigator assessed. So we have to keep in mind in, in cancer in general that it might, we know it might slightly change or bias the numbers when you ask the investigator to assess a new strategy as compared to a blinded independent review committee. Important to stress that the median PFS on the alectinib arm, which was 35 months, which means three years, right, uh, of PFS, which as compared to what we knew in lung cancer sounds amazing, with the usual more or less 10 to 11 months for crizotinib. So here you triple the median PFS uh, in these patients. I must say not only that alectinib versus crizotinib compares favorably in patients with or without brain meds, but there is an incremental of benefit to be observed for alectinib versus crizotinib in these patients who already suffered from red meds. In Alex, we could also have a slightly longer follow-up for survival as compared to uh, regatinib, but we could uh, already see that for, for uh, crizotinib, the median of our survival was five years, 57 months, but was not switched with alectinib, but with a stratified hazard ratio of 0.67. For alectinib, the problems you might encounter are very different from regatinib. It can be liver toxicities, very interestingly, muscle pain. So people come, patients come with myalgia. Another thing to keep in mind with alectinib is photosensitivity. So the patient have to stay away from going to the beach and being under the sun for hours. So maybe if you agree, Todd, I'd like you to present the third trial. Yeah, for sure. So this is um, going to sound very similar, everybody. It's almost the exact same study design. These were first-line treatment-naive patients who were ALK-positive. Uh, performance status 0 to 2. The dosing for lorlatinib was 100 milligrams once daily versus crizotinib standard dose of 250 twice a day. Um, the endpoints, similar again, 
uh, progression-free survival. Um, so when we looked at the results of this, a very nice separation of the curve with 63.5% of patients um, not having yet progressed at three years uh, versus um, only 19% of the patients on crizotinib. The, the median progression-free survival has not yet been reached in the CROWN study, um, and the hazard ratio for uh, PFS was 0.27. Looking at the impact of brain metastases on PFS, uh, certainly patients with brain metastases uh, do a little bit worse, but the PFS still not yet reached in patients who have baseline brain metastases uh, versus 7.2 months for crizotinib and a hazard ratio of 0.21. And those patients without baseline brain metastases, again, not yet reached versus 11 months of PFS for a hazard ratio of 0.29. Uh, so with or without brain metastases, lorlatinib is a better drug than crizotinib. Uh, the safety for um, lorlatinib is, is much talked about. The most common thing we actually see is hypercholesterolemia and hypertriglyceridemia. And those are typically very well controlled just by starting a statin. Actually, the biggest hassle that patients have while they're on this is edema, uh, though there can be some separate from edema, some weight gain. Uh, the CNS side effects uh, are important to be aware of. They can be very, very mild um, and very subtle. It's important that we engage our patients and their families in being aware of depression or slowed mentation that can come with these with orlatinib. Uh, so that we can manage it through dose adjustment. Ben Solomon then presented an update um, for CNS progression uh, more recently, later last year. Uh, patients with CNS metastases um, had a 7% uh, versus 72% response or uh, progression-free um, in patients with brain metastases and patients without brain metastases only one patient developed brain metastases over that first year versus 18 on uh, crizotinib. So a very, very good protective effect on the brain if no brain metastases are present, and even if they are already there, um, still a pretty strong 12-month uh, uh, incidence of brain metastases. Um, the 35% of patients on the, on the CROWN study did report CNS adverse events. Most of these were grade one, and in patients who did develop them, there was no clini clinically meaningful dif difference in patient-reported quality of life. Thanks so much to both of you. So we've been seeing this data, looking at second and third generation TKIs, brigatinib, alectinib, and lorlatinib versus crizotinib. What is probably very important in trying to prolong life of these patients is to make the right decisions in terms of course of treatment frontline, but also of sequencing over time. The idea is not about the PFS of a single drug, but the PFS of the addition of one drug after the other one leading to a final overall survival, including the oldest chemotherapy, right? Maybe including some immunotherapy, maybe including some radiation therapy. So basically, my question to both of you is, and it's a debate in my center, I must say, what is the best frontline strategy? If we stick to the paradigm of best drug first, some suggestions could come and I would say, Stress the fact that orlatinib looks slightly better than the two others, right? But slightly more toxic too. So the question is, should you start following the principle with lorlatinib or do you think there is a better room to sequence and have lorlatinib in second line? Uh, maybe Todd to start. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. 
This this is such a fun slide to look at. It's also a little terrifying um, as we try and stack this data together to figure out what's the right thing for our patients. Um, I agree with you that we should be using our best drug first. Um, and I, I'll throw a little sports analogy. It's sort of like Lionel Messi does not sit at the bench to start the game. You don't save him for the second half to try and rescue it if, if you're losing. Lionel Messi starts the game because he's the best in the world. If we have a good drug, we should, we owe it to our patients really to learn to manage those side effects because they're just different. The idea that lorlatinib can be a good rescue medicine after electinib is sort of what it's designed for, but if you look, it only gets you about five and a half months after you progressed on uh, electinib. And that plus the PFS of electinib appears that it's shorter than the lorlatinib by itself PFS. But I think that the lorlatinib, the updated data, um, is pretty strong and is swaying people who might once have been more afraid of the drug, I think. Nicolas, do you agree? Do you choose lorlatinib first too? Yes, and especially in patients uh, without CNS disease, because I'm pretty impressed by the kind of 100% control of CNS disease that we can have in those patients without a, a baseline CNS disease. It means that l with lorlatinib, you are protecting those patients from entering into CNS disease. And once you have CNS disease, you will have CNS relapses every time. So to me, protecting those patients against brain meds is probably a major uh, clinical objective. So in those patients, I, I favor uh, lorlatinib first. And uh, I have to say that uh, uh, probably we, we have used a lot lorlatinib in the second, third, fourth line setting with these uh, CNS effects that may actually be related to the drug, obviously, but also to the previous history of CNS metastasis, uh, uh, radiation-induced uh, uh, toxicity, and so on. So my experience in th is that in those patients without CNS disease, probably we have uh, uh, less uh, uh, CNS effects, uh, side effects related to, to lorlatinib. This is my clinical uh, uh, experience. I would say that in patients with okay. CNS disease upfront, well, the difference to me is not uh, that uh, uh, high between lorlatinib and s sequencing of second generation inhibitors followed by lorlatinib. And those patients with baseline CNS disease, they will have CNS relapses. So you need another drug to control uh, 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 these uh, uh, CNS relapses. Um, I, I'm still not myself convinced that the argument is there. Uh, the most important thing would probably be the discussion about handling side effects. But by reducing the dose to from 100 to 75 milligrams, sometimes even 50, you usually can handle the side effects quite well. The weight gain might be something that uh, is, is a long term, I would say, um, hurdle or, or difficulty for the patient uh, and of course the cholesterol is a concern because you need to treat it but um, to me it's probably more about discussing the side effect profile than the brain. Uh, Todd, were there any analysis in Crown telling you that you should not reduce the dose or that you can do it? Do you, do you start with 100 milligrams by the way or do you fast reduce or start with 75? I do start at 100. Um, and I started 100 because I know that if patients develop the side effects that we're worried about, the CNS side effects, a simple dose hold and dose reduction and those side effects go away in almost all of the patients. Um, the crown data got presented at ESMO last year 
And what it showed was there's no difference in 12-month in progression for patients who had dose reduction or dose hold. So whether total dose or dose intensity did not affect PFS in patients on lorlatinib. So you can start at the higher dose and drop it down to 75 if you need. And, and you're right, I do have a patient who's been on for years um, and he's been on 50 for the last four years um, and tolerating it well with good control of his disease. Thanks so much. Hello, this is Solange Peters from Lausanne University Hospital in the Canton Vaux in Switzerland. Joining me in the discussion are my two friends and esteemed colleagues, Nicolas Girard from Curie Montsouris Thorax Institute in France and Todd Bauer from the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee in the US. And we will look at cases and try to see how to deal with side effects, treatment selection, as well as sequencing of treatments. So welcome to this second part. Uh, and uh, I will start introducing a first example of clinical case. So this is a healthy 58 years old patient uh, who was diagnosed upon the emergence of a cough, a persisting cough, uh, was found on the CT scan to have a 3 centimeters right lower lobe lesion. Uh, the patient was a never smoker patient, uh, and uh, the PET CT, unfortunately, uh, revealed uh, two levels of lymph node involvement at the level 7 and 8, what is called multistation, right, which defines uh, a stage 3A non-sponsored lung cancer. Uh, in some environments, this might uh, undergo a surgical procedure, but um, according to guidelines, many, uh, say, institutions and regions in the world would define it probably more for a non-surgical assessment, non-surgical approach, but definitive radiochemotherapy. Uh, at that time, there was a liquid biopsy done in parallel to the tissue testing, and both were revealing an ALK-positive non-small lung cancer, an ALK rearrangement. So the decision was made to treat uh, in a curative intent uh, strategy with a definitive chemorad. Uh, it was in the America. I can tell it because of the chemo choice. It was carbopaclitaxel and radiation, which is a usually not really used in Europe, but unfortunately, so restaging six months after the end of radiochemo demonstrated two brain lesions. And the question is here, you have this patient after 62 gray, 66 gray, and chemotherapy with alt positive disease and a relapse in the brain. How can we choose what to do? So maybe Todd, you want to give us your feeling about the, the strategy, uh, how to choose in this patient. Yeah, certainly. Thank you very much. The, the process I go through is to really try and look back at what our preclinical data is, what is the clinical data, the three studies we just talked about, ALTA1L, ALEX, and uh, CROWN, and then try and look at the patient-reported outcomes, which were looked at in CROWN, because quality of life is really important for patients who can be on these drugs for years. So preclinically, it's, it's important to remember that not all ALK fusions are exactly the same. And uh, variants 3AB and variant 1 are the about 60 to 70% of all of those. And if we can know that and then look into some further data about which is the strongest ALK inhibitor against those two <clears throat> from a preclinical setting, that can help guide our um, choice of drug in the, in the first-line setting. Um, then we also know, as we've talked about, that CNS progression is a big problem for these patients. When we looked at patients um, and this was in some phase uh, two, three data, um, expansion cohorts of patients who had multiple different prior uh, ALK inhibitors 
looking at progression inside the brain or outside the brain. And what we saw is that patients clearly have a higher progression rate outside the brain than they do in the brain. Um, so that makes me know that we're doing a good job of controlling the disease in the brain. So that plays a role, especially in this patient. So the patient was started on lorlatinib, uh, and they had good tolerance with no CNS effects, but what we expected to happen happened, and both their cholesterol and triglycerides popped up pretty high. Uh, they were started on statins very quickly, and those came back down nicely. The patient then um, had scans two months later and had a complete response. Uh, both lesions in the brain uh, treated for it with resolution. Um, so in thinking about these side effects, um, again, the CNS side effects are ones that we have to be aware of and they can happen, but what we see much more commonly are the uh, elevated cholesterol, triglycerides, edema, and weight gain. Um, there's some peripheral neuropathy associated with lorlatinib as well. For the most part, the hypercholesterolemia can be treated just with the institution of uh, statins, um, and then the other side effects can be treated with dose hold and or dose reduction with good resolution. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, maybe just a question for you about hyperlipidemia. Some colleagues have taken the institutional decision uh, to ignore hypercholesterolemia and hypertriglycerolemia, and I feel not very comfortable to ignore a high cholesterol. What's your feeling about it? Yeah, I, I get a little nervous not treating it. I think that um, the risk-benefit of putting patients on a statin, and again, the, the choice of statins is very important uh, in conjunction with lorlatinib um, because of SIP uh, enzyme interactions, uh, but I think it's, it's well worth it. Thanks so much. So let's try to understand further uh, the resistance, right? We've seen the story of the brain, which was the most obvious and the most, I would say, often encountered type of resistance. But when we consider maximization of the management of these therapies, we must, of course, look at um, tolerance, uh, patient-related outcomes, but also handling of resistance. So let's consider a patient is developing resistance, for example, to lorlatinib during the treatment. So what, um, Nicolas, would be your considerations? Well, uh, it's very important to first have a, a clinical assessment of the patient. And we know that even in metastatic uh, lung cancer, some patients are not taking the pills. So you need to have this discussion with the, with the patient. This is something very basic, but sometimes you, you may be surprised uh, on how the patients are actually uh, taking uh, uh, their oral drugs. So this is the first point. The second point is also to differentiate uh, a systemic progression versus uh, an oligo progression because uh, in oligoprogressive disease you may consider a local treatment of the progressing uh, lesion while continuing uh, lorlatinib. And then uh, uh, the question is about the molecular mechanism of, of resistance to, to ALT-TKIs and in this case uh, uh, lorlatinib and uh, my view is that uh, if you uh, can do a biopsy of the progressing uh, lesions and do some kind of comprehensive genomic profiling, this is always useful, especially after lorlatinib, uh, which is a, a, a powerful inhibitor of, of ALK. You may observe some uh, uh, additional molecular alterations, some kind of, uh, of bypass mechanism, meaning the 
activation of other signaling pathways that uh, you may identify using uh, standard uh, NGS uh, panels. Another mechanism of resistance, uh, which is also a molecular mechanism of, of resistance related to the loss of RB1, is the histologic transformation into small cell lung cancer that we may observe i in some of these uh, of these patients. And then the question is how to do a rebiopsy. It may be obviously uh, challenging to, to get a tissue biopsy, especially in patients showing uh, uh, CNS progression. Uh, liquid biopsy is of interest in, in those patients, even if uh, you have to consider the, the sensitivity and the comprehensiveness of, uh, of liquid biopsy panels. Well, it's always uh, interesting to look at, at clinical trials in, in this setting, and uh, uh, obviously uh, we would like, this is precision medicine, so we would like to uh, choose the, the treatment sequences based on, on molecular characteristics and the knowledge of uh, uh, molecular alteration that uh, uh, arise uh, when a patient shows resistance to, to, to any ALK TKI. Uh, one example is, is MET. Uh, activation through met amplification and in this uh, study design this is a phase one two uh, multi-arm study you genotype the patient uh, uh, after uh, progression under ALK uh, uh, TKI if you have a met amplification combining lorlatinib plus chrysotinib which is an ALK inhibitor as we previously discussed but also a, a met uh, uh, inhibitor and uh, there are other uh, uh, treatment arms in patients without MET uh, amplification uh, integrating uh, binimetinib or uh, SHP2I uh, uh, inhibitor. So this is what we want to get. It's very challenging in ALK positive non-small cell lung cancer to do this kind of rebiopsies because of the frequent CNS uh, uh, progression. But at the end, it's probably a good way to uh, have a treatment sequencing that is truly individualized, uh, personalized uh, uh, treatment. Thanks so much. Hello, this is Solange Peters from Lausanne University Hospital in the Canton de Vaud in Switzerland. Joining me in the discussion are my two friends and esteemed colleagues, Nicolas Girard from Curie-Montsouris Thorax Institute in France and Todd Bauer, from the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, in the US. The third part of this, uh, this program will be about cultivating the patient, caregiver, and provider partnership, meaning that wherever we work, we have uh, key, key challenges, right, in defining how to communicate all this data to patients and relatives, and also conceal the patients correctly according also to his preference and according to what is available where you work. And when starting and initiating uh, an ALK inhibitor, uh, I'd like maybe both of you to cover how you consider you will prioritize your discussion. Of course, it's about survival, that's about uh, prognosis, but that's also about the intent of what you propose and the prob possible probable flaws of each treatment decision because nothing comes without side effects. Nicolas, do you want to start how you, how you would uh, potentially discuss? Does it take you half an hour or one hour? How do you handle that? Uh, 
Uh, well, 45 minutes, I would say. Uh, uh, it's very important to uh, discuss with the patients uh, about several things, especially uh, when starting the, the treatment. The most important thing for a patient, in my understanding, is response. They want to see the tumor decreasing at, uh, at the next uh, CT scan, and this is something very important uh, for the patient. And Hopefully we have that with uh, ALK inhibitors pretty quickly and this is something probably very important to the patient. And then the next point is that uh, they need to understand that it will be a continuous treatment. It means that even if we have uh, everything uh, uh, disappear, complete uh, response, we will need to continue uh, the, the treatment forever. Here we are in the setting of targeted agents. So we need to continue the treatment uh, 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 even if we have a, a major or a complete uh, response. It's also very important to, to state to the patient, and this is something what I do, is that this efficacy will not be forever. And we already know from the beginning that we will have to change to another drug, possibly to chemotherapy. So I very uh, shortly introduce the, the, the kind of sequencing of, of therapies. Todd, you, you told us, and we, we know now you're a, um, a fan of lorlatinib frontline and you handle toxicities quite well. Do you deliver material and how do you warn them about lorlatinib toxicity? I do send people home with a written um, packet of information about it because it is overwhelming. Um, a, a new cancer diagnosis, uh, getting into molecular biology, which is tough to understand, and, and the rationale for picking these drugs, it, it's hard. Um, so I think what I tell them is first what I, what I expect to happen. What I, my clinical experience and what clinical trials tell us is the most likely thing to happen on these drugs. I then do share with them some of the more feared side effects that while they can happen are rare, and then I reassure them that if those happen, we're able to reverse them and control them, and it's not going to be a permanent thing. Um, again, the, the, having the family member involved to pick up on, on the slowed mentation and signs of depression is absolutely vital to treating somebody effectively um, on lorlatinib. But, you know, for brigatinib, it's watching out for any sort of pulmonary changes that might occur in that first week, even if you don't have it. Um, and, and for the muscle pains for electinib. So each of them unique discussions um, that, that just have to be held and, and re-answered and re-answered and re-answered as many times as, as we need to, to do so. They are very active um, patient advocacy groups or patients group, right, uh, on digital media. Uh, on Twitter, uh, on uh, on Facebook, and they also make a lot of emails and interactions. So it's probably good to also, maybe not in the first consultation, right, but as soon as you find the space and the time to speak more about supportive care and the importance of being connected, of having the resource to discuss not only with the doctor, but maybe with pairs, right, patients facing the same difficulties. It's maybe important to try to understand where you work uh, what are the patients group who are active? Of course, in every country, there are some dedicated dedicated patients group for ALK, for EGFR, for this alteration, but also international groups, which really represent an amazing network uh, of, uh, uh, of resources, but also of support, uh, of sharing experience, of, I would say, on psychological kind of, uh, of presence, right? Which 
I must say my patients really appreciate. So usually I try to give, there are some websites for ALK Positive. There is ALKPositive.org, but there are many also patient groups that you can identify simply on Twitter by, by having ALK as a keyword. You can find some nice patient groups. And I felt it's really comforting for the patients to understand uh, that uh, there is a connection there and there is a, a, a same, I would say, difficulty sometimes to understand, same set of questions. Sometimes also they have some good tricks, right? To treat toxicities would be the skin, would be so, some of the pains or, or side effects. Todd uh, and Nicolas, something to add there? I think also making sure the patients know what to look for, but also aren't afraid to tell us about those side effects because they don't want to lower the dose. Um, but making them understand how important it is to do so when indicated and moreover, how effective the drug continues despite a dose, dose reduction. I have to say that yeah, we, we will treat these patients for many years, so we really have to partner with the patient. Thanks so much. Uh, so thanks to all of you. Maybe uh, as, a, as a summary of, uh, of, uh, of these three parts of this ALK positive non-small cell lung cancer session, uh, we have identified together the many options we have now to treat a patient's frontline with a dedicated and, and specific treatment for ALK-positive disease. Chemotherapy frontline has no role anymore. Immunotherapy has a very limited role and none of them should be frontline. We need to uh, treat patients with uh, this precision oncology strategies and tools. And uh, now we even have too many choices uh, in order to make uh, the survival of this patient not being the usual one year, but to go up two years, maybe five, seven or 10 years survival. Uh, I think uh, the physicians who are not aware of all of this data should not feel ashamed to ask in a tumor board or molecular tumor board how to proceed and how to move in all these rare disease entities from ALK to NTRAC, for example. And also we shouldn't uh, uh, refrain ourselves to address the patients to uh, or to guide the patients through these patient advocacy groups in order for them to find uh, a way to be connected with patients with an orphan disease. So thanks to you, Todd. Thanks, Nicolas. Thank you. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.